Hey, this is David Sanborn, and welcome to As We Speak, which is a show that finds me sitting across from people with one thing in common, creativity. This week, I'm speaking with composer Maria Schneider about many things, about her time with arranger Gil Evans, collaborating with David Bowie, and of course, her own extraordinary music. It's been such a long time. I mean, I feel like, even though there, there are these long gaps in between when when I see you, it's just like it always picks up at the, at the <laughs> same place. It was always like, so anyway, like I was saying. <laughs> well, I felt like that way from the first moment I met you. I yeah, don't know. That, I feel like we're old friends. I know, exactly. Like distant relatives. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the last time I saw you, I think, was in Norway. Maybe Molda, yeah, yeah. You were talking about data lords. I was just, I think, still conceiving of it, the music. We were yeah. playing some, you know, it wasn't uh, that far because data lords ended up coming out uh, during the pandemic. Mm, and right, that, right. that was pre-pandemic. But they, they did an amazing thing at that festival where uh, every year they have somebody be kind of their, I don't know, grand marshal or I don't know what they call <laughs> it, but you get to kind of help. I don't know if I helped curate the festival, but anyway, I had to give a speech at the beginning. The first day of the festival, they have this parade go through town, and yeah. um, and then I had to give a speech, and I gave it about big data and, um, you know, what's happening to all of us because of it, not just musicians, yeah. but what it's doing mm -hmm. to us. And the people embraced it so much that week that all week people were stopping me and you know, just saying, that's that girl she was talking about. <laughs> so, yeah. it, it, and it, it made me realize, wow, people are thankfully awake to this subject, you know, and now it's like post my record coming out, now everybody with the whole thing, the, the chat GPT or whatever it is, and the, you know, artificial all the, intelligence, yeah. the, all the artificial intelligence stuff. It's like, yeah, hello, folks, wake up. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it, it's ironic that in Hollywood, the writers strike. Yes. And it's yes. about really about this very same thing, which yes. is, uh, you know, rights, you know, because of streaming. And, and, yes. and the fact that, you know, well, somebody's getting paid, but we're the content providers. You know what I mean? Yeah, and the and the thing early on, you know, with us in music, and this is a thing that uh, some of us realize, not enough of us realize, but this idea of the all-you-can-eat buffet, like, look, everybody, you're getting all this stuff for free. Or in the case of streaming, look how much content you're getting for $9.99 a month or whatever it is. And people don't realize that doesn't scale. The real thing they were all after, and this is what I said about Spotify, and people laughed when I said it. When Spotify first started, I said, hey, pay attention, look at their employees. The vast majority of their employees were data analytics scientists. And I said, these people are not in the music business. They are in the business of big data. Pay attention. Yeah. Something is going to yeah. happen here. And sure enough, you know, and so all these companies, these big data companies, they're in it for the data that they're grabbing, whether it's now we realize it's from the music to use it for, you know, artificial, intelligent music or um, or whether it's 
scraping data from the people listening and watching like YouTube or whatever. So yeah, it's ugly. It's ugly. It's creepy. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. The, the implications are, like you said, are real, really science fiction. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, it, it seems like, oh, well, come on, you know, but then, oh, well, come on becomes a daily reality. And all these little manifestations, like, like I said, like the, the writer's stripe and all these little things here and there, chat box, uh, all of this stuff are little things that are seemingly interconnected. I mean, this sounds so conspiratorial. I mean, I'm, I'm even checking myself as I'm saying it, but nevertheless, they're all kind of a man manifestations of the same reality, this, you know, creeping sense of, you know, your, not only your, just your means of making a living, but your humanity gets, gets stripped away. And it's really frightening. We as artists know that um, the importance that our lives generate, our music, it tells of a life experience. It tells of some yeah. truth. It connects with people because there's some kind of, unknowable truth that people recognize through music or through art. But the problem is, is that people are getting the listening audience. Are, are they able to even discern anymore? When you have people like Daniel Ack basically saying, hey, the way to make more money on quit your complaining, the way to make more money is just make more music, <laughs> you know, and, and not paying attention and make it shorter make it faster, get to the hook quicker. I mean, these are not necessarily things that make, it could be a short piece, can be a great piece of art. But, you know, if that starts driving the music or the ability to make it through AI and then people start to just not care anymore. It's kind of like when people quit caring about so much about listening to real instruments you know it was enough to just listen to a midi orchestra or something it's it's kind of it's scary because i think art saves us i think art is a healing force and i don't know what this is going to mean you know in terms of what art does for us you are a certified artist in the last week or so i've been listening going back and listening to all your music i mean holy shit, that stuff is fantastic i listened i went back to evanescence oh yeah, yeah the way the solos kind of emerge and then go back into the orchestration they're so integrated you know do you think that you picked some of that up from gill or was that just a kind of a natural impulse i think gill was the reason I went into this whole direction. You know, I studied uh, classical music, uh, composition, and at the time, you know, so I went to college in 1979. At that time, the classical world was very into serialism and not into ton tonality at all. And um, I love tonality. I, I, yeah. I just, and at that time, I started listening to so much you know, I was from a small town, so I hadn't been exposed to a lot of jazz beyond my piano teacher, who was a stride pianist. And um, so I, but then I go to college and suddenly I start, you know, finding things. And I, I found Bill Evans and I went crazy over Bill Evans and the harmony and the voicings. And then I saw Gil Evans there 
and thought maybe they were related. I mean, that's how ridiculous it was. I and know. Then I, well, so then I bought, but when you're starting, you know, and so then I found Gil Evans and all of a sudden in that, I heard, and it was a box set. So it was all the Gil Evans, Miles Davis stuff. And I heard this merging of classical with improvisation, with the textures, because most of the big band music I'd heard, I loved, but it was like Thad Jones, things from the Count Basie band, you know, things that were more like, you know, in your face, that kind of excitement thing. And all of a sudden comes Gil with the making you feel like you're going to cry or you can't breathe. Then I discovered the late Bob Brookmeyer stuff where he was so advanced in the development of form. And so all of a sudden yeah. you had these pieces that aren't theme and va variations on a tune, but it's breaking it up and creating these long forms. So the two of them were just, you know, that was my my dream team that just made me say, I want to write for big band, but it's not really like a big band so much. Yeah, it's, it's the orchestration, the use of instruments that are not necessarily have historically uh, identified as jazz, you know, like bass clarinet, you know, uh, French horns, things like that, 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 you know, was revolutionary to me when I heard Gil. I mean, I remember the, the first time I, it was Porgy and Bess. And I listened to that music and it was just like, it changed my world. You yeah. know, and I remember when, when I played with Gil, uh, you know, I, I asked him about, about Borgin, but she said, well, he just kind of fluffed it off. It's like, well, I, I just orchestrated George Gershwin's things. I just, you know, like he, he totally minimized his accomplishment. And I mean, and, and in a way he was right. You realize you listen to the original score to Borgie and Bess, so the Gershwin score, and it's pretty advanced, pretty revolutionary. And, and, he, and he orchestrated a lot of that stuff. One of my favorite things of his, the Barber song, from yeah. uh, from the individualism of Gil Evans. If you listen to the original Kurt Vile, it goes through all these different sections, and it's you know it's it moves kind of fast. But Gil like slows it down, pulls it apart, uses every single part. He doesn't really add anything. He just magnificently. He just has a new vision for it, and. And yeah. Gil used to always say to me, maybe he said to you that he just writes barbershop harmony, which yeah. <laughs> wasn't maybe true, but I sort of know what he means because a lot yeah. of it was like stacked thirds and things moving with contrary motion, parallel motion, but always lines, always beautiful lines. There's all, always that one note in there. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, but that, but that note is always yeah. coming from a line. It's yeah. never like, just like, okay, here's here's a voicing. I remember years ago, a teacher had said to me once, throw in one of these boys. You know, Gil never throws in one of these boys, like a chord. It's yeah. always a chord that's resulting from some sort of linear story in each instrument. Yeah, the third trumpet line. Yeah. I mean, that was what struck me. When I played that music, it was like, wait a minute, everybody's playing a melody. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. and it, it's so beautiful how all these melodies interweave. And as a player, it made you invest more emotionally into your part because you were playing a melody. Bingo, bingo. Every part's singing. Because people always say that 
the the trick to Gil Evans or what makes him great is the the transparent voicings. And I say no, the transparency comes because each player is playing no. in a singing way because they're giving something to sing. No. I mean, I have to say that you really captured that in, you know, philosophically and in practice. Because I listened to, like, Thompson Fields. I mean, I was listening to that this morning, uh, Walking by Flashlight. Yeah. And it was, it's like my wife and I were listening to that in the morning. It's like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're doing other stuff, but then all of a sudden it's like, oh. <laughs> all of a sudden we're there and the song ends. And it's like, no, 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 don't yeah. stop. I had so much fun working with you years ago. Oh my gosh. We I remember um the love theme from Spartacus. Oh that yeah. that arrangement is so beautiful because it's so lyric it's the Alex North from yeah, the yeah. Alex North score for Spartacus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just remember it was just so beautiful and lyrical. And then it's like it gets a little dark. And it's like yeah. the clouds are like, you know, it's so atmospheric and that and then stuff, you know, you get a little buried in the in the in the arrangement, but you're not buried. You're just there's more complexity going on, and then and then you emerge from this. It's like it's really a journey. All of your music has has that quality to it to me. It's like you feel like you've really been somewhere. Well, thank you. Growing up in the Midwest, I think really shaped the way you know that I play and the way I think about music. Because there's a there's something that that you know especially in a rural area like where you came from it was it Wyndham yeah Wyndham and you're you're from which town Saint Saint Louis yeah you're Saint Louis okay out in the you know out in the outer suburbs and uh, I think there's there was a um, I think a quality that and especially during the time that I grew up it was like a kind of promoted daydreaming and I think daydreaming is a really big part of my musical experience and when I heard your music for the first time it it struck me that this is a person who understands what daydreaming really is because it's about sur uh, surrendering to the moment it was like being in the moment and especially Thompson feels that's what kind of clinched it for me it's like you just surrendered to the like this it's not a reverie because it's not nostalgia it's just tapping into this thing of like i'm free i'm just free and i just hear this incredible freedom in all of your music even the stuff that's more let's say aggressive you know it's like there's a liberated quality to it, like a tune like Wrigley. 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 Sorry. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Me. It's not a real word. It's a monster. I thought it up. It's a. <laughs> it's a thought up word. So I want to ask you this, just because of what we were first talking about. Yeah. A lot about daydreaming, because you're right. When you're from a place in the Midwest, it's flat. It's open. It's and. You know, back when we grew up, nobody had cell phones. Nobody had computers. We didn't even have answering machines. You were home or you weren't home. We had this empty landscape. 
in in our in our own brains and a huge part of our worlds as young people it was daydreaming yeah. and thinking and and imagining and i don't do that as much as i did because sometimes that's the first step to that is uncomfortable there's a, there's kind of a there can be a lonely feeling in that there can be a discomfort uh, a, or a fear of that space and if the first thing you do is suckle on the teat of the of the iPhone or whatever it is, yeah, um, which we all do, we all go and okay, I'll I have a moment, I'll quick text change, check my texts or or whatever. Yeah, yeah, can that does that exist? Can people come from that place easily anymore? I think it's going to be more and more rare. And artificial intelligence can never create that. No, it it can't because it's about. You know, it, it it's about like I, just speaking to what you said about you know why why are we so uncomfortable if we just let go and and it's like wait a minute I'm not doing anything I'm not doing and the idea that you you know have to do and can't just be the the French philosopher Pascal saying the the problem with humanity is that nobody knows how to just sit alone in a room. And just be, you know, and it's just, it's about being, it's about being in the moment, like whatever is not doing something, but by not doing something, you are kind of awake, you know, you're just, okay, I'm being, wait a minute, you know, all of a sudden you're getting comfortable. I'm not, I should be, oh, there's, I have so much to do and Mm -hmm. I have to do this and I have to do that, but I think, you know, you can call it daydreaming, you can call it just, you know, meditating, zen, whatever, but it's just being, you know, like, you know, reminding ourselves that we are not what we do, we are, and we do so, you know, and I think that's what I always felt about you, and I felt about Gil. He actually wrote an arrangement of a tune called Sword Visit that I recorded on one of my albums. It's one of the It's certainly one of the best things that I've ever done. And it was one of those great moments. We were in the studio and uh, I had this great band and, and we did like one or two takes and it was just like, okay, that's it, you know? And every once in a while I'd pull it out and listen to it. It's... And it was one because it evokes Gil to me and just his presence. Which album did you do that on? Uh, I think it's called Heart to Heart. Oh, okay, okay. And, That's yeah, one of your very famous. And, uh, okay, I have to go know, and look I, back and listen. When I first when I first moved to New York, I actually lived at his apartment for for really? about a year. Yeah, I lived in that that the, on, the place on Westbeth in yeah. Westbeth. You know, how did you meet him? I I don't know this story. Um, Howard Johnson, I was living up in Woodstock and I was uh, just, I wanted to get out of there and come to New York. What and year? Ha- what year? 73, something okay. like that. And uh, Howard Johnson was playing uh, baritone saxophone and tuba with Gil. And he said, why don't you come down you know, and play, play with Gil? I said, oh my God, I'd be too terrified. And um, I, 
it was an afternoon show someplace at the village gate. And I came down there, you know, Howard introduced me and I, you know, Gil said, well, you want to play? I go, really? <laughs> what? Right now? Okay. So I sat in with the band and I'm just like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just, you know, here and I'm playing. And Gil just went, okay. And and I thought, okay. And then he called me for another gig. Then he called me for another gig and I got closer. And, and then when I left Woodstock, I didn't have a place to stay. So he said, well, you can stay at my place. I remember it was a duplex and I slept downstairs in a, in a bunk bed. And I just, you know, hung out with Gil and Anita and it was like, I was like, I can't believe this is happening to me. You spent so much time with him, right? Well, a fair amount, clearly not as much as you did. <laughs> but um, yeah, Gil was somebody who you learned so much from without him teaching, you know, yeah. or, or you would ask a question and you would get a weird kind of answer. Like, I I was always so nervous. I still am when I hear something new. And so I asked him one time, I think it was before we were going to record music for um, Color of Money or something. And I said, Gil, do you ever get nervous before you hear something? He started laughing and he told me a story about him inviting a friend of his to write something for his band. And he said they were standing up there by the music stand and the band ran it down and he looked over at his friend and he was gone. And then he looked down and he passed out from fear. <laughs> and Gil just laughed. So he never told me whether he got scared. He just told me about his friend that got so scared he passed out. The thing that he did with you saying, hey, do you want to play in my band? In yeah. his his biography, I think it was probably the one that was done by Stephanie Steinkreis. But there are several people that said that, you know, Gil just met them on the street and then said, hey, you want to play in my band? And then they're suddenly just in the band. And Gil had a way of doing that. I mean, even with me, it was Tom Pearson that introduced me to Gil. He and I had been talking and I barely knew him, but I, he was asking me who my favorite writers were. And I was going on and on about Gil. And he called me that night and he, he said, I didn't tell you today, but my closest friend is Gil. And I told him about you and he needs an assistant and he'd like to meet you. And so, you know, it just like happened. And, you know, before I knew it, I was writing things for him and he had no idea about me as a writer. I mean, I, I was copying, but it was just like he just kind of got a feeling and went with it or didn't get a feeling and went with it anyway. I don't know if it was convenience or telepathy or, or just luck, you know, it was just or you know just the lack of him having another 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 option other than me that came to him <laughs> I mean as much as I love talking about Gil there's so much more about about you that I want to talk about I want to you know I mean I want to gush about a gush the tune oh, yeah. gush that you... <laughs> I was looking for your arrangement on it and of course here I am, you know, we're talking about the, the evils of uh, of Spotify and the internet, and the only place I have to look is Spotify and YouTube. I feel like I'm, you know, colluding with the enemy. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm I'm a victim of it as well. Because... Did you find Gosh on YouTube? No. No, I no. didn't think so. Probably no. not, because <laughs> we've taken a lot down. Yeah. No. So, I mean, it it's... You can see on the one hand, I mean, I, I 
kind of simplified it and broke it down to the fact that, well, it is a useful device, but the fact that people aren't being justly compensated for the use of their material. I mean, you are a content provider. I am a content provider. So we should be compensated fairly. And I think there's this perception in the in a certain segment of the public is that, well, you know, why shouldn't I have access to this? Why shouldn't I get this for free? Why mm-hmm. should I? Well, because, and this gets back to my point about this, is somebody's getting paid. The problem is, is that the uh, how people are getting paid, the currency is largely data. And what's interesting about that is when these companies are collecting data on your music, you know, they're not paying tax on that, yeah. you know, they're not paying sales tax on it. And you can't just turn around and say, okay, give me that money because it's this amorphous thing that turns into something very real and very, you know, uh, it, it made them the richest, biggest company in the world. But but the thing too about you saying a content, being a content provider, the problem with uh, something like YouTube is that you don't necessarily have the choice about whether you're a content provider because other people can put your things up. Yes. And if you don't, if you aren't given all, all the available tools that exist out there that are used for YouTube to make money on my music, but I'm not allowed to use those tools to protect myself, you know, if I'm talking about fingerprinting software. You know, then it's yeah. like, whoa, whoa, yeah. you know, it's like, excuse me, because I have a real, as you know, I remember we talked about it when I first did it. I remember you saying something about when I started doing Artist Share. Yes. Do you remember that? Yeah. Do you, yeah, do you I know? Do. So, David, do you know how much time has passed since that first conversation with you and Artist Share? About Take 10 a guess. years. 20. 10 years? 20, 20 years. I launched my first artist share project in 2003, I think it was fall concert in the garden. And that idea was that, okay. um, The idea behind it was sharing the creative process through my website, announcing that I was going to do a project that people could come on board and, and then follow the process of doing the project and it was crowdfunding before the crowdfunding word was invented because people were paying for the project up front. I'm still doing it. It's still working. The, but, but what's harder and harder and why it's harder for new people is that how do you maintain visibility on your own website? How do you keep your price here when you you can find it for free on other sites. You know you can't you can't have a free market when people are giving your music away for free because I can't compete with free. So wow. so this is you know the problem and so it's it's but I've thankfully I started that back then. I knew every every single person who bought my music. Um, I got their email address, maintained these relationships. And these people are still participating at a high level on my music. I financed yeah. and made a profit on Data Lords. It was a quarter of a million dollar project. It's it's unbelievable. 
because I can set my own price. I can say, okay, these are about how many fans I have, which isn't a whole heck of a lot. You know, I'm a rather... It's enough. Uh, it's, it's a niche market, but you... But, that small market on Spotify or YouTube is nothing. I yeah. I wouldn't even get my cab fare to the studio with it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and when you need to pay for a record and pay that many people, and you want to make a beautiful product that's packaged beautifully, I mean, you got to charge real money for it. So anyway, it's yeah. But that whole thing of somebody's getting rich. Some are getting rich in dollars. Many are getting rich in data. And that data is giving them capabilities and now artificial intelligence capabilities. It's giving them so many predictive um, things that they can sell to people. It's really, really sick, you know? It's scary. Yeah, and I, I think certainly, I mean, uh, at this stage, uh, t to me, the easiest uh, um, target for me to focus on is the fact, and I keep, I hate to keep bringing it back to this, but is that somebody is making money from this. So whether, whether it's, you know, when you say data, um, do you mean to, because that has to translate into some kind of currency at some point. When you say they're harvesting at data. So, at some point, at some point, like think about, think about Spotify. Spotify has all these people's music on it, right? Yes, and the, and the value of that music for Spotify now is the pool of all that music and all the data when that music is put in and crunched to create, you know, uh, music, AI generated music, or the data. You know, if you collect um, the people that are watching things on Spotify and you collect all this information about them because. It's grabbing everything. That person listened to this. Then they went here. Then they bought stuff. You know, it on on its ear, it might not seem like much, but when you get that in mass, and then you're able to now know that there's a predictive thing that these people that listen to this music are more likely to default on a loan. Okay, so that that information now goes to here, or you these people that listen to this music are more likely to buy the little felt things that go under chairs. And those felt things, those people who buy uh, those felt things under chairs almost never default on loans, you know, or, or whatever it is, which actually is a true thing. People who buy those little felt things on, on that are under chairs are much less likely to default on a loan. So they find out, you know, just endless stuff and AI and the massive quantity of data that they have give them that power but that's not you know quantifiable if you, if you think about sales tax back in the days when you were selling you know CDs in a store and then people were paying sales tax and then that's benefiting that community whether it's I don't know what it all goes to whether it's schools or fire this or roads or you know whatever it goes into yeah now you now you've got people giving away oh hey it's free you know and they're getting data but there's no taxable event there. Nobody, and actually, you know, when you barter, it, it, the IRS has a barter law that when you give something and somebody gives you something in return, but it's not a cash event, uh -huh. that is called a barter. And you have to 
uh, quantify what those things are worth and pay tax on it. Otherwise, there would be no, everybody could just barter and there'd be no sales tax. And I've even written about the fact that when these companies use our music and they give it away for free and the person is listening for free, but the company's taking their data, that that's, that's like paying for something, but with data and that, you know, a company like, you know, YouTube or whoever's collecting data should have to pay tax on that, you know, on a number of on a number of levels. So anyway, that's and, been and my idea do, about and it. Why does that happen? Why is that allowed to happen? Because uh, because they have a lot of power with our, our government and because bingo. they can bing, bingo they, bingo. They right? can destroy a, a politician like that by lowering them in search or whatever. Try getting something to happen in Congress on this stuff. It ain't easy. It's like the musical version of the NRA. You yeah. know, it's just yeah, like, yeah. no, 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 you're yeah. not going to do that. No, you're not. And, you know, and, and the record companies in a certain way are complicit in this. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of bifurcate your brain to say, okay, how do I maintain a... a uh, spiritual connection to what it is that I'm actually doing and and still at the same time be conscious and aware of things that are happening on this material level and, and you know, stay in touch with it because it's, I mean, I guess in some ways it is, they are separate, but in another way they are the same because somebody abusing their power to gain control over somebody else and that's that's as old as history. It's a fallacy at this point, maybe not for you, but for a lot of people, and I'll explain why. You said, because in the old days, you know, records were in that bin, and all the Blue Note records had that look. Impulse had that look. You know, every all these mosaic, uh, every. Everybody, Atlantic, everybody had their look of their records. And you said, you know, I still have this ego attachment to being on a label and yeah. and and feeling that that right. label means something. And, you know, it did. But the problem is with the record companies and what they did is when their ship was going down, they threw all their artists basically under the bus because what they did to save themselves is they decided to sign on like with with YouTube on content ID. So YouTube had this fingerprinting technology that if you your music was in the database and somebody put your music up and it recognized it, it'd say, mm, can't go, can't go up. And then all of a sudden YouTube said, hey, how about if it when it recognizes it, and there's a fingerprint match, we'll put an ad on it and you can have some of the money. You can have the little table scraps. And these record companies signed on for that out of desperation, knowing that they had these big catalogs. That's when they started buying up all these other catalogs so that they could be making table scraps on tons of music. They quit paying for people's records, largely. Yes. That's when all of a sudden... The, the label deal you'd get was, well, you pay for your own record and we'll put it out. It's like, oh, so I get the ego attachment of having you as a record label, but you're not actually paying for it. Then Spotify comes as the answer against the YouTube thing and says, 
hey, it's going to scale because we're going to charge $9.99 a month, except we need music. How are we going to get music? Well, let's bribe the record companies by offering them each equity in our company, which they did, and they gave them a big cash payment. Now they threw all their artists under the bus, settling out everybody's music and all these people with past contracts that suddenly you've got a situation where 10% of the music was getting 99% of the plays. So 10% of the music is getting 99% of the financial pie, mostly with those big companies. And for the rest of the 90% of us in the niche genres or who aren't the big superstars, we're splitting the 1% of the financial pie and we're having to pay for our own records. Excuse me. This is never going to scale. Yeah. That's that's right. the business right. and that's what that's yeah. it in a nutshell. I want to talk a little bit about your collaboration with Bowie. And oh, yeah. also about Tony Visconti, his engineer, who I mean I you worked with as as I did. I mean it's funny cuz I I played with Bowie in 1973 and 74, like kind of at the beginning of his career in America, you know, the Young Americans and uh, David Live, those were his first records that really broke in America. And uh, you were there kind of toward the end of his musical life and actual life. I want to ask you, were you aware when you first worked with him, did he talk to you about jazz? Yes, you know, I, and I knew that he played alto. He wouldn't really play it around me, and I was kind of disappointed. Understandable. But I, well, <laughs> but I knew I knew he was a huge jazz fan, and that he grew up, you know, on the East End of London, and he he was, uh, you know, playing the saxophone in 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 a band, and also sang and, and wrote songs later. But he was a huge jazz fan. As a matter of fact. Uh, the keyboard player in his band, Mike Garson, was a student of Lenny Tristano's. Played these, you know, breakneck speed like solos and stuff on Bowie's records, and he was an integral part of his music. So there was always this element of jazz and the more complex harmonic things that that jazz brings with it. And he loved his musicians. He, lo- oh, yeah. he loves musicians, as you know, as you found out. He and Tony just walked into a club, right, one night where you were playing. Well, well, years, yeah, years ago, um, I I finished a set and everybody in the club was saying, "Did you know David Bowie was here?" And I hadn't known he was there, and he left right before the end of the set. But then I heard from somebody who worked for him. She wrote to me and said she wanted to give him all my CDs for Christmas, and would I sign them all to him? So I was signing them. I can't believe I'm signing this CD to you, Maria. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was just. And then time passed, and then out of the blue, um, uh, he reached out, or somebody from his camp kind of reached out and um, said that he wanted to talk about collaborating on something. And so I, um, and Tony Visconti's manager had said something to me about it. And I thought, really? That seems so weird. David Bowie wants to collaborate with me. And then we got, uh, he called me. I was on a train going to Boston. It was just kind of unbelievable to be talking on as my cell phone with David Bowie and him saying that 
he wanted to collaborate on a song together and uh, he wanted it to be for my band. And I said, so you want us to write a song together and you want to record it with my big band? I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> but he assured me, he said, look, he said to me in that very first call, he said, if it ends up being something that I don't like or you don't like, he said, I wouldn't put it out. He said, I wouldn't do that to me. And he said, I wouldn't do that to you. So it's just, you know, fun to experiment. And so my band was going to be playing. And so he came to Birdland, I guess, with Tony and heard the band. And then the next day, um, he came over and, you know, walked in the door here and, and he played me the beginnings of a song he had come up with. And it was sort of in Lydian, but he wanted it to be dark. And so, you know, I started playing around with it um, just at the piano. I said, what do you think it's going to be about? And he said, I don't know, vampires? <laughs> and then he kind of smiled. He was all excited about that. And I thought, oh, my gosh, okay. Okay, dark. And then he said to me, he said, you know, my favorite music of yours is your early dark music, like Wurgly, the one you said, and another one called Dance You Monster to My Soft Song. He oh, said, yeah, that's from... From the same album. Same right. album. He said, I love, and that was all from my dark period. You know, it was, that was kind of pre-visiting Brazil and spending time in the country and loving the bucolic world and not feeling like, you know, I think in the beginning, I felt like my music needed to be strong and prove something and dense, wow. and, you know, and I still like that. But, but then David was a great combination because he came in right after I had testified before Congress and was writing a lot of articles about this big data stuff. So I was getting good and cooked up inside about things, you know, just in time <laughs> for David to look for my dark period. And so I, I said, okay, look, and I said, let me just fool around with this on my own, you know, when I'm not so paranoid about sitting next to you and, and just come up with some ideas and then let's get together. So, you know, I did that for a week or so. And then, you know, we fooled around and I showed him, you know, we just sat there and he worked the same way I did. I didn't use any MIDI, anything, computer, nothing. We both used the same is it Zoom recorder or whatever, just recording our ideas, you know, sitting at a piano, um, you know. It, so anyway, so we fooled around with the ideas and slowly started to find a direction on this thing. And then I said to him, let's Let's put together, I said, I'm really paranoid about just going into a, a session. I said, I really want us to hear what the form of this is. Um, he he knew he wanted Donnie McCaslin to solo on it. Um, he wanted it to be kind of a drum and bass thing. Uh, Mark Juliana did it and um, on drums. And so we put together like a, just went to a rehearsal studio with Tony there and everything, just with two horns uh, Donnie and Ryan Keberly from my band, trombone player, and then rhythm section. And then we just fooled around with these ideas and tried to figure out how long things should be. David wanted lots of soloing. And I and the guys, we talked about it. We were like, David, I don't want this to be something where it sounds like you're guesting on my band. I said, it really has to be about you with the improvisation being a response to your melody, you know, I want it to be, it It can't be rock meets jazz head on, you know, like head on collision. Yeah, it yeah. needs to be this meeting of the improvisation, which you, you said in my pieces anyway, I always want my 
my improvisation to be yeah. integrated and meaningful as the whole. And here the whole is David Bowie. And so, yeah. um, so we finally we went to the studio, and when he came in the studio, he came in with brand new lyrics, and he showed them to uh. me, and they they looked a little violent, and I was like. I looked at him and he said, yeah, he kills her. It was called Sue and it's about a man who kills his wife for cheating on him. And I was just like, oh my God, and this is right when the whole, you know, Me Too Me thing too is coming thing. out. Oh, and I'm oh, like, Jesus, oh. David, you know, really now, you know? I felt really proud of what we did and and you know he wanted to do that that version you know it's online actually that is on YouTube um, with the with the uh, you know with the whole band but then he did a small group version that's very different and I wasn't a part of the recording of that on Black Star but the the thing that happened is you know he had told me his first love was jazz and then he loved Gil, and he loved he loved uh, uh, Kenton and various things, and but he was really into this drum and bass thing, and he wanted to do more things. But I was just getting ready; I was writing my last music and getting ready to record Thompson Fields, the one that you um, were talking about today. Yeah, yeah. And and I had dates booked. I had the mixing booked for months. I, I There was yeah. no way I could change that. People had held these dates for a year. So um, I said to him, I said, you know, I really think you should consider collaborating with Donnie's group. And he said, oh, do you think they would want to? And I said, yes, I am sure they would want to. And so we went then down to 55 Bar and watched them play. And he got really excited and, and just thank God he has been a huge influence on my life. He helped really bring out that dark risk-taking thing in me again yeah. and yeah. and with a new face because he, you know, he, he said to me quite literally, he said, you know, I said, you know, I'm just so nervous about this. And he said, Maria, if the plane goes down, the great yeah, thing I'll about music is we all walk away. So well, I was yeah. like, okay. I love that. It, it, it's and it's it's really I really hang on to that, you know. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, okay, what if it just goes down in flames? Yeah. Whatever, you know. Yeah. So, anyway, but I I feel good that I it, and it feels weird. Like, how is it that somebody like that who I had no connection to whatsoever? Right. But somehow he is risk-taking and reaching out to somebody like me, which is an odd thing. Probably felt a little... He was seemed generally nervous about it because he was so oh. just respectful of jazz musicians, which I'm sure he felt that around you, you know. And But how him doing that somehow then steered him to that last album, which is phenomenal. Yes, you know, it is. Black Star is phenomenal. It is... And it's a great marriage. It does the thing that I was talking about, where it's not about improvisation meets, you know, the voice and the sounds of David Bowie, but it's more like, um, you know, it's just this natural merging. And so pursuing jazz in the very beginning, and he went out with jazz. And it's amazing, right? You create these destinations in your music and it, it's 
it's a place I, I want to go. Every time I, I hear one of your records, it's, it's, um, it's just like, yeah, I want to spend some time here. That's the hope, you know? You, you want to create something where other people want to come to where you are. It's not always the case. Sometimes it happens to people after they die, you know? So I'm pretty lucky that I've got yeah. enough people that want to come there when I'm alive. <laughs> well, and the people that don't, it's their loss because uh, it's a beautiful yeah. place. You know, yeah. Wyndham, Minnesota is a, is a beautiful place. That, you know, I'm yeah. going to call the, 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 the tourist uh, uh, agency in Wyndham to see what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Wyndham is a beautiful place. Yeah. Thompson Field should be on the list of places to see in Wyndham. Sometimes people that, you know, have participated through Artist Share yeah. will tell me I yeah. drove I drove through Wyndham or I drove by Wyndham and I would say, Oh, you should call up Tony Thompson and visit the farm, you know. <laughs> Listen, I I so appreciate you uh doing this and, and giving me the opportunity to spend some time with you and to catch up and to talk about things and it's it's always always a pleasure maria so good to see you to be continued this has been as we speak a podcast from wbgo studios this episode was produced by trevor smith Billy Robinson is our executive producer, and the president and CEO of WBGO is Stephen A. Williams. I'm David Sanborn. <laughs>